Sunday we began a new teaching series entitled The Doctrines of Grace, Calvinism. And uh, my task last Sunday was to provide you with some definitions and a historical overview. Uh, we talked about Arminianism, the soteriological position of the remonstrants or Arminians. And if you need additional definition or you need to define these things further or find out what we're talking about, the best thing to do would be go back and, and listen to last week's message or watch it. But in any case, the Arminian group wanted the doctrines of grace thrown out of the church and replaced with five articles of Arminianism or the five articles of Arminianism. And we talked about how a synod gathered. It was a collection or a gathering of religious leaders. Uh, it was called the Synod of Dort. Uh, this took place in 1618 to 1619. They came together and during seven months, 154 sessions, they defended the doctrines of grace, which are biblical, the official position of the church since the incarnation of the church, really. And, uh, and they gave the doctrines of grace the nickname Calvinism at that point. And they also ruled against the Arminians and exiled them from Holland because that's where this took place. We learned that the Synod's official ruling and expulsion of the Arminians did not put an end to Arminianism. It actually kind of slowly grew and began to spread throughout parts of Europe, especially in Britain. Uh, it was eventually exported to, or from England to America in about the middle 1700s. And of course, we talked about how if we fast forward 140 years to our, to our day, Arminianism is now the, or at least has become, the prevailing soteriology in American evangelicalism. Uh, the vast majority of denominations and churches in the U.S. are Arminian, and I think a great many of them don't even realize it or know it. They don't even realize it. And, and here's really what they do. They, they believe, churches and denominations believe they are preaching the biblical gospel when they preach free will, salvation is our choice, when they preach conditioned election, God chose us because we chose Christ, when they preach general atonement, Christ died for all unilaterally, not anyone in particular, but really kind of unilaterally for all, when they preach resistible grace, that's the idea that we can block the Holy Spirit and His saving work. And when they preach falling from grace, which is none other than salvation can be lost if we're not careful. So that is what Arminian churches throughout the nation are preaching on a week-to-week -week basis. And I think most of them don't even realize that they're, they're preaching, they think they're preaching the Bible. They think they're preaching the Bible. I mean, I certainly preached these things with the exception of losing your salvation before I came to an understanding of these things and knew anything about church history or really what the Bible teaches about God's salvation. But this is what they are doing. They're not preaching the true biblical gospel like they think they are. They are actually preaching an ancient heresy that first appeared in the Garden of Eden when the serpent told Adam and Eve basically said this to him, I'm paraphrasing, God lied to you, you won't die if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will actually become like God. 
So that's where Satan deceived Adam and Eve and preached to them the very first recorded heresy. We see that in Genesis 3, 5. Ever since that moment, the fall of man, sinners have been following Satan's advice and trying to make themselves like God or into God's. Do we not worship ourselves? We do, like nobody else. What do we call this ancient heresy? We just call it by its most simple name, and that's humanism. It's just humanism. Humanism is the exaltation, the lifting up of man, and it is literally the oldest heresy because it dates back to Eden. We see it throughout Scripture, expressions of it. At the Tower of Babel, where man tried to create his own ladder to heaven. We see it in the book of Judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, not according to God's law. Uh, We see it in the book of Daniel, where we see four humanistic, man-centered kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, especially with King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, who bragged about his accomplishments and became like a grazing ox for seven years as a kind of disciplinary measure against him from God. That was a man-centered kingdom. We also see humanism in the Gospels with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Those are the religious leaders of Jesus' day. What were they doing all the time? Exalting themselves above everyone, including Jesus. That's humanism. We see it in Philippians and in Galatians where the Judaizers who... They basically exalted their their false gospel of grace plus works above the true gospel, which is what? Grace alone. We see humanism in Revelation, the book of Revelation with Antichrist constantly exalting himself, constantly. We see humanism throughout church history was given the nicknames Pelagianism and Semi-Pelagianism in the 5th and 6th centuries and given the nickname Arminianism in the 17th century. I would say the ultimate historical expression of humanism that is associated with quote-unquote Christendom is the papacy. With the Pope as its head, it leads the Roman Catholic Church, 1.2 billion adherents. Roman Catholicism is incredibly man-centered insanely humanistic. Pray to the saints, adore and worship Mary, bow and kiss the Pope's ring, submit to the papacy, confess your sins to a man behind a screen, earn your way to heaven through being a good Catholic, purgatory, leave Catholicism and burn in hell. Need I say more? You can't get more humanistic than Roman Catholicism. When churches preach the articles of Arminianism, They are essentially preaching a repackaged demonic heresy that began in Eden. Humanism. Because of this, evangelicalism is in a terribly sad state in America. The purpose of this series is to ground us, ground believers in biblical soteriology, right? A biblical understanding of how God actually saves dead sinners, right? And we call this the doctrines of grace. We call it Calvinism. It's our duty to study these things and and to know these things as Christians. We, We need to know what the Bible says precisely about how God saves. We need to know that truth. We need to live that truth. We need to share that truth. And by golly, we need to defend that truth in love, all for the glory of God.
And our approach to this great task is really threefold. First, it is to provide proper definitions and a historical overview for the doctrines of grace. Is that not what we worked on last week? Second, it is to provide a biblical basis for the doctrines of grace. What good is, or what good are the doctrines of grace, or what good is Calvinism if it isn't scriptural? It's utterly useless if it isn't in Scripture. And thirdly, it is to provide a solid application by describing the impact of Calvinism on ministry and our everyday lives. Now, we are about to enter the second phase of this grand work of studying this subject, but before we look at Calvinism in Scripture, we must first discuss the sovereignty of God, and I should say the absolute sovereignty of God, because it is the foundation on which biblical Calvinistic soteriology stands. Now, here's a word of caution from John MacArthur before we proceed, and this is totally relevant, totally relevant. Listen to this. He says this, No doctrine is more despised by the natural mind than the truth that God is absolutely sovereign. Human pride loathes the suggestion that God orders everything, controls everything, and rules over everything. The carnal mind burning with enmity against God abhors the biblical teaching that nothing comes to pass, it comes to pass except according to God's eternal decrees. Most of all, the flesh hates the notion that salvation is entirely God's work. If God chose who would be saved, and if His choice was settled before the foundation of the world, then believers deserve no credit for their salvation. Amen? This is His word of warning. There's something about, like, there's certain truths, like submission. That's not one we like. And another one that we don't like is the sovereignty of God. Because we've been taught our whole lives that we think we're in control. That we control and navigate our own destinies. That God just has kind of set things in motion and leaves us to, to go at it alone. We don't like the truth of God's absolute sovereignty. The Arminians certainly don't, even though they'd probably say, we love that truth. Please take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, our text for this morning. We're going to go through a lot of text, but we're going to, this is going to be a launch point for us. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. I'm going to go ahead and read it aloud and then pray, and then we'll get to work. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. Listen to what David, King David said here. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Father, we thank you for this time that we have to come together to study your word. We pray that you open our eyes and ears and hearts and minds to the truth. Convince us today, Lord, if we're not yet convinced. Convince us of your absolute sovereignty. Please do that from Scripture today, Lord. May your spirit, your Holy Spirit, prevail over us. May He cast away our hardened hearts and replace our hardened hearts with hearts of flesh that are moldable and pliable. This is a, a fundamental truth to Christianity, not just to soteriology, the 
study of how you save. It is fundamental to, to our entire religion, to everything. And so, Lord, help us to see this today and to believe it and to live it. We submit ourselves to you now, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We have just read one of the most amazing passages on the sovereignty of God in Scripture. There's lots of them. There's so many of them, I, I couldn't even number them all, but this is one of, the, one of the great ones. In fact, it's so great. One of the greatest theologians of all time, an Englishman by the name of A.W. Pink, used the very verse that I just read as a, as a starting point for his entire book called The Sovereignty of God, which is a phenomenal resource on this subject. Now, let's build a little context for the passage that we're going to be looking at today. All right, this is what's, what's going on here in 1 Chronicles 29. This is the, the background of what's happening. King David, he desired to build a house for the Lord, right, a temple. But the Lord prevented him from doing it because he had too much blood on his hands as king. I mean, David had been to war over and over and over. He had battled the Philistines almost his, his entire rule and reign. He he wasn't a bloodthirsty king per se. He went out to battle as he was instructed to do, but he had so much blood on his hands through all the conquering, it probably wouldn't have looked good to all the surrounding nations to have him build a temple for the Lord. I don't know what the Lord's rationale was. It just says that he had too much blood on his hands. But he wanted to do it. He expressed a major desire to do it. He desired to build a house for the Lord, a temple. But instead, David's son and successor, King Solomon, he became King Solomon, you know, the guy with a zillion wives, he didn't start that way, but his successor and son, Solomon, he was given the task instead, right? We read about this in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 7 through 10. And David, obviously, since he's a man after God's own heart, he humbly submits to the Lord on this. Even though he wanted to do it really badly, he said, I'm not going to do it. And, but he didn't give up on the project as some spoiled people tend to do, right? Well, if I can't do it, then nobody's going to do it. Instead, he says, I'm not going to do it, so my son will do it. So, but he still, during his reign and rule, decides to raise resources for this great project, right? And he himself gave generously to it. And so did the Israelites, the people that he ruled over. The hearts of the people were, were moved to give freely of their goods for this great undertaking. In the midst of much rejoicing and, and great joy, David made all the necessary preparations for the building of the temple in Jerusalem. When all the preparations had been made, David blessed the Lord and led the congregation of Israel in a wonderful prayer of blessing and thanksgiving and jubilant praise, which began, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. That's 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10, the verse that comes before the verse we just read. And this is an amazing point in, in history and in Scripture. This is the first time in Scripture we see the Lord being referred to as Father by the people of God. Take note of that. David's prayerful song of thanksgiving and praise continues in the next line, right? 1 Chronicles 29, 11, our verse. He says, next, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. It all belongs to you. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, he exclaims, and you are exalted as head above all. This is, this is a doxology that we're looking at here by David. 
Now let's start to get to the meaning of it here. David joyfully describes the sovereignty of God in two ways here in the text after he announces what? God's greatness, God's power, God's glory, God's victory, God's majesty. Notice that in the text, the order there. He says all these amazing praise things about God before he actually gets to the point where he announces God's sovereignty. He's building up the greatness of God before he gets to the sovereignty to express how great the sovereignty of God is. I would just like to pause to say that David had an extremely high view of God. And this is primarily why he was considered a man after God's own heart, right? 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. David's high view of God is on display in this wonderful text from beginning to end. From his use of the title Lord, which always refers to God's sovereignty, to his announcement, identifying who God is, his greatness and majesty and victory and all these things. And obviously toward the end there, to his descriptions of the sovereignty of God. Arminian soteriology, it's understanding and teaching about how God saves. It thinks it promotes a high view of God. But it actually does the opposite because it denies certain aspects of God's sovereignty. It says that God's sovereignty is far-reaching, but it must stop at man's free will. It can go no further. This puts free will above the sovereignty of God. It basically puts man above God. You cannot maintain a high view of God like David did while clinging to a soteriology that denies his absolute sovereignty. It cannot be done. I don't care what anyone says. A high view of God requires full acceptance of God's full sovereignty, period. I think we'd all agree. I mean, how can you have a high view of God when you deny something about him? That's a low view, at least in that area. Look at David's twofold description of the sovereignty of God here in the text. He says, All that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. You are exalted as head above all. This was David's way of saying, Lord, you own everything and you rule over everything. It all belongs to you. As owner and ruler, God exercises absolute sovereignty over His entire creation. The statement, you are exalted as head above all, is patriarchal in that God is above all people and creatures and things, above everything, literally. And yet it's also all-inclusive, which means there are no areas in which God's sovereignty has no jurisdiction. He is sovereign over everyone and everything without exception. That's what David is, is exclaiming here in his praise, in his doxology. Now, we need to look at some, some additional passages that, that will undergird and support David's incredible doxology here. I have 13 truths for you this morning that illustrate the absolute sovereignty of God. And, and I would say that in David's simple, humble praise, all of this, all of this meaning that I'm going to give you is packed into his statement. He might not have been thinking about all of these things, but what he said means all of these things and more. And, and let me tell you, what we're doing here is absolutely essential to this entire series. Because as I've said, 
It, it, is, it is necessary for Calvinism to have, to have a foundation of God's absolute sovereignty. It is necessary for biblical soteriology. Without it, we, we can't go where we're going without God's absolute sovereignty. If God is even slightly not absolutely sovereign, then I may as well preach an Arminian message because that's what they believe. That's not what we believe. Listen to these. Number one, and I think they're in your bulletin. Number one, God is sovereign over the weather. Boy, is this something that we've really been learning as we've been working our way through Job, right? We've taken a break now to do this series, but this is something that, that we have come back to several times in the almost 30 sermons that we've done in Job. Our first verse here that, that highlights and illustrates this is Job 5.10. God gives rain on earth and sends water on the fields. God is the one who releases rain. And that's why the people who have those signs all over in the, uh, what, what is that area, the wood colony area, have it right when they say pray for rain because God's the one that can release the rain. He controls all the weather, famines, uh, earthquakes, volcanoes, all of it. I don't even know if the volcano is the weather, is it? It'd be bad weather. He controls it all. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 13, when God utters His voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and He causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and brings out of, He brings out the wind from His storehouses. You get the idea that God's got wind stored up in big old wind store, uh, storehouses up there in heaven. Now, I think that's uh, that's, that's not actually the way that it works. He's not using hyperbole per se, but he's giving us an illustration of what it's like. But God controls the wind. God is, is the one who sent the wind a couple of weeks ago that wrecked almost everyone's patios. <laughs> Praise the Lord. He gives and he takes away. My friend Dale that's been here, I don't know, at least one time, had this beautiful canopy over his patio and it ended up on his side yard all twisted up. It was a big expensive thing that he had. And I said, that's what you get for not anchoring it down. God controls the rains. God controls the winds. God controls the weather. I, I, one of the most uh, explicit illustrations of this we see in Matthew 8, 27. Jesus got up and Jesus is God, right? Jesus got up and rebuked the winds and the sea and it became perfectly calm. The disciples who were in the boat with him, they were kind of blown away. They were amazed, and they said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? I'll tell you what kind of man he is. He's the God-man. God controls the weather. If there is a famine somewhere and there's no rain, that's God's doing for God's purposes. If you get too much rain, like in Seattle, that's God's purpose. That's God's doing. He is behind all of it. He is absolutely sovereign over the weather. It's important for us to realize this. Meteorologists need to do themselves a favor and figure this out. A storm is rising out on the Atlantic and it's headed over here to Florida and it's going to be a hurricane. That's God's finger spinning that big pile of air. He controls. He's sovereign over the weather. Number two, God is sovereign over all animals, or we would probably call that the animal kingdom if it were a kingdom at all. In Numbers chapter 21, verse 6, the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. Okay, look, they didn't set up camp that day on a snake mound. There were probably no snakes in that area until God sent the snakes from wherever into that area. 
And it was a, an act of discipline toward the Israelites at that moment that God sent those venomous snakes. And then we know Jesus played on that, talks about how, if, you know, if you lift up the Son of Man, you know, right? Because in that scenario, you had to lift up uh, something that Moses fashioned, and it was like this bronze snake. And if you looked at it and you were bit by a snake, you were healed. And Jesus played off of that, talking about if you look at the Son of Man who's lifted up, you'll be healed. That's the story. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 25, And at the beginning of their dwelling in Samaria, the subjects of Assyria did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Okay? It wasn't that uh, Ringling Brothers was, had, a, had a caravan of, of trailers and that somehow the lions broke out and then attacked all these people. God brought lions in from the surrounding wilderness and they nuked the people. God did that. He controlled the animals. Jonah chapter 1 verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. This is the original Moby Dick, except this guy gets swallowed. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, which symbolizes Christ being in the tomb for three days, rising on the third day. But in any case, here is a big fish that comes up along the side of the boat, opens its mouth like a, like a begging dog. Jonah gets chucked into the water. He lands in the fish. He's there for three days. Somehow he's alive and not digested. That's the work of God there, controlling the fish, controlling the whole scenario. God controls the animals because he's sovereign over them. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Not one sparrow, smallest bird thought of in, the, in antiquity. They thought that was the smallest bird. Maybe they'd never seen a hummingbird. Not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from the Father. God is absolutely sovereign over, over all animals. And when a sparrow dies, that is God's doing. When a sparrow hatches, that is God's doing. That's how intimately involved in his creation he is controlling all of these things, all of these factors. Number three, God is sovereign over life and death. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, uh, there is no other God but me. This is, this is God speaking directly to the Israelites. There is no other God but me, exclamation point. I am the one who kills and gives life. I am the one who wounds and heals. No one can be rescued from my powerful hand. Look, look at how explicit this is. I am the one who gives life. I am the one who takes life. Repeated in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6 in a different way. The Lord gives both death and life. He brings some down to the grave but raises others up. You know, in, in a way, we, we typically think of conception as as just kind of a, a, a biological event. But really, if God is the one who gives and takes away life, then it actually is a miracle. But some have tried to explain that away scientifically. It's just when this happens and this happens. Well, I'll tell you what, maybe this happens and that does happen. We can see that. That is real science. But God is the one who sets that in motion and causes it, which means that God is also sovereign over wives and women when they are barren. He gives children when it's time for him to give children. And to some, he doesn't give any children because he has his purposes. He's sovereign over life and death. And of course, when every person dies, and we tend to think that somebody died too soon. They were too young to die. They died right when God wanted them to die. He died too young, we say. He's sovereign over life 
and death. There are many other passages I could cite, but for time restraints, we just can't do it. That was number three. Number four, God is sovereign over all people, over everyone. Well, this is illustrated throughout Scripture. I, I just... It's a profound truth, and we see it everywhere. Um, we can go to Acts chapter 17, verse 26. Listen to this. From one man, speaking of Adam, God created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand where they should live and die, and He determined where they would live. You rail against the fact that you live in California? This is where God put you. Deal with it. He brought us all forth from our original OG parents, Adam and Eve, all of us. And he marked out, he not only gave us life, created us in these wombs, but he gave us the places and, and the time periods where we would all live. That's what is being said here. He's sovereign over all people. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, the heart of man plans his way. Isn't that true? We all make our little plans, right? But it says, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now, we can make the plans all, we can make all the plans in the world that we want to. How many times have your plans been foiled by the Lord? Because they weren't his plans. That happens almost on a weekly basis with me. Praise the Lord. He's sovereign over all people. And, and we down here on this side, we make our little plans and we do our little things, but God is ultimately in charge and in control of all of that, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Daniel 4.35 illustrates this perfectly. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and God does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Right? God is literally sovereign over all people. He rules and He reigns over all people, not just His people, the church. He rules over the, the elect, those whom He's chose to save, and He elects over the reprobate, those who will never be saved. He rules over all. And we, we think that we're being ruled by Biden now, and Biden thinks he's ruling us, but guess what? Biden is nothing. Biden is just one earthly king, just one. We'll get to that now. Number five, God is sovereign over earthly leaders. I mean, obviously, if He's sovereign over all people, then He's sovereign over the leadership that's, that's over us. In fact, He appoints it, even when that leadership is wicked. He's sovereign over all earthly leaders. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, He removes and He sets up kings. Emperor... Newsom is God's choice. Newsolini, or whatever you guys call him. Robin. He might be on his way out, and that's God's choice. Praise the Lord. Sorry, Gavin, if you watch this, you need Jesus bad. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, the king's heart, listen to this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God directs the hearts of kings and presidents and, and, and all of these different leaders, prime ministers. This is God's doing because He's sovereign over all these earthly leaders. Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh was the most powerful man on the, in, in the entire world during that time, during the, the time that the, the Israelites were captive in Egypt. 
And it says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. God said, hey, I'm going to harden his heart, and he's not going to turn you guys loose. He hardened his heart. He did it through certain activities, but it was God's doing. God hardened that, that king's heart. First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 26. Listen to this. The God of Israel caused King Pol of Assyria to invade the land and take away the people of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh as captains. God caused this king to get a wild hair to invade, gives him the wherewithal to go do it, and the guy goes and does it and takes some of these tribes of Israel captive. God caused this king to do that. Why, why is that? Because the king's heart is like a stream of water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he wants. This, this is your Bible saying this. This ain't me. I, I think we can kind of see why people kick against the sovereignty of God, don't they? Well, that can't be because there's some evil associated with that. Well, guess what? God is behind that as well. He never commits evil with his own hand, but without his ordination and power, evil doesn't exist. We'll talk about that in a moment. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 28. This is amazing. We've got some leaders here that did some stuff. Indeed, Herod, remember King Herod and, and, and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And listen to this. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Remember a few years ago when the, when the big controversy during Christmas season was who killed Jesus? Do you know who killed Jesus? Was it Pontius Pilate and, and Herod and the Jewish people and the Romans? Was it them? Because that's what everyone was talking about. It was God that killed Jesus. He's the one that killed Jesus. Why? So that you could be saved. He worked through the, 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 the wickedness and the terribleness of those earthly leaders to accomplish his purpose. He did that. That was God's work behind those rulers, those earthly leaders. Now, he didn't have to cause Pontius Pilate or any of those to do it. They were already wicked and wanted to do it, but God was working behind the scenes, working through their actions to accomplish this. He was steering them toward that goal through events. That's how intricate the plans and will of God is. It's amazing. You could never blueprint God's plan, not like you could some house. They met together and conspired and did all these things, and it was all God's will for that to take place, all part of His plan. They played right into God's plan. And if, you don't, if you're not willing to accept that God was behind that, then you don't understand what the Father has done for you. We, we sang earlier that He willed to crush the Son. The Father did that so that you could be cleansed of your sin and saved. If the Father doesn't do that, you don't have salvation. He has to do that for you. And He did that. He is sovereign over all earthly leaders. The king's hearts are in His hand. The decisions they make reflect His will, His purposes. Even when those things, we can't understand it, and they're wicked. When one nation invades another, we can't understand that somehow that is going to accomplish God's good purposes and bring Him glory. But he's sovereign over all of it. Nothing happens outside of his sovereignty with these earthly leaders. Uh, you know, people are railing now. Oh, our Savior Trump is gone. Look at Biden. 
God removed Trump and put Biden in office. Why? Because he has a broader plan for this country. And I think it's its destruction. And there's nobody better to do it than the Biden administration, let me tell you. And Trump did his fair share of things, too. I didn't like the person, Trump, but I liked his policy. That's it. And he's a despicable person to me. And God is behind all of these leaders. We get these leaders. We think we voted them in. God put them in office. We have an election that's, that's a, a sidecar show. God is going to put in office whoever He's going to put in office to accomplish His purposes. He's sovereign over all earthly leaders. Number six, God is sovereign over all nations. Yes, especially America. Because now that Biden's in office, we think that everything's going to be out of control and it's going to be nutso and, 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 and crazy and bananas, and, and it is going to be. But God is still sovereign over this nation. Psalm 22, verse 28b, He rules over the nations. God not talking about earthly kings or presidents. Psalm 47, verse 8. Uh, Bruce read this earlier. God reigns over the nations. Listen to this. God sits on His holy throne. Hey, newsflash. Somebody's enthroned above all these nations. His name's King Jesus. How wonderful is that? He's sovereign over all of them. Job chapter 12, verse 23. God makes nations great and He destroys them. He enlarges nations and He leads them away. You get the idea of a nation going away into captivity. That sounds a little prophetic about what would happen with Israel and Babylon, doesn't it? What is the major point here with these verses and, and countless others that I don't have time to list? God is sovereign over all the nations, period. Number seven, God is sovereign over human decisions and human plans, all events. God is sovereign over all of it. Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 37 and 38. Listen to this. Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? it is, not from the, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? I mean, this verse clearly lays out for us that God is working behind the scenes, behind human decisions and events to accomplish His purposes. Uh, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, I love this one. I think you're familiar with it. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. He's just basically simply saying that again, like the verse we read earlier, we make all sorts of plans, but it doesn't matter what we plan in the end, God's will is done. Even when we are seemingly planning totally against His will, we are somehow fulfilling His will. I, I don't know about you, but that's above my pay grade. We call that complementarianism, where every human decision has, every human choice has God's working behind it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, that's a heavy, weighty topic right there. In Acts chapter uh, 22, verse 23, listen to this. Fellow Israelites, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Listen to what he says. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Who killed Jesus? The Father. Why? For our salvation. 
It was his plan, his will, and they executed it perfectly, even though they thought they were just doing their own ruthless deeds. That's complementarianism. That's the absolute sovereignty of God working behind all decisions, thoughts, decisions, plans. Lastly, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes. God is sovereign over every event and everything that happens in your life, orchestrating, working, bending, twisting, manipulating, getting things, all these human decisions. He's working them all to come back around to be a blessing to you somehow. To those who love God and are called according to His purpose, He works everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly for our good and for His own glory. That's a mind-blowing thing there. Because I tell you what, there have been some terrible things that have happened in my life. And now I can look back and see how God had planned all along to use those terrible things to bring about good. One of those terrible things was the death of Rachel's mother. Tragic. It was, it just, it crushed us. It crushed her. And, and, and through that, God was working and weaving together his plan from eternity past to save Rachel and to save me and to make me a minister who's preached the gospel to I don't know how many people. Think about the way that God takes all of these terrible things and redeems them for his glory and for our good. Why? Because he's sovereign over all of it. That's how he can do it. If he's not sovereign, he can't do these things. He ordained these events so that they would transpire the way they did and bring about the purposes, his own purposes. That's mind-blowing. That's what he has done. It is hard for us to accept the truth that God is absolutely sovereign over human decisions, plans, and events, but He is. He is. Number eight, God is sovereign over seemingly random things. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, the lot, this is like, this is like rolling dice here, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Even random things that, that, that transpire in our lives are His doing. Even random things, even random meaningless things, He's somehow sovereignly behind those things. I think of stupid little things like me dropping my glasses and then stepping on them and breaking them. Right? That's a seemingly random thing, and it's also an expensive one. And somehow God is absolutely sovereign and over that, that that was part of His plan, that I would break my glasses and get snaked out of 300 bucks. <laughs> He's that big, people. He's sovereign over seemingly random things. Number nine, God is sovereign over evil things. He is sovereign over evil things. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7, God is speaking here. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. Do we not see God create calamity in Job's life? That calamity would have never happened if it weren't for God's sovereign doing. And, and when we think of what happened with Job, it's even referred to in the book of Job as being evil, all the evil that came upon Job. God was behind it. It didn't even have to come through God's hands. It came through Satan's hands. But it doesn't happen without God's sovereign control of it. Amos chapter 3, verse 6 is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Huh? 
I mean, this is the idea of a city that's about to be, you got, you got guys marching around the, the walls of the city blowing trumpets saying, we're going to come in and take you out. And right here, Amos says, that's God's doing. God is the one who's behind that. It doesn't happen unless God makes it happen. What? Yeah. Job chapter 2, verse 10, Job says to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. That is an amazing point right there. Job says, look, good things happen to us, evil things happen to us. It all, it's all God's doing. It all comes through God. God is sovereign over all of it. It all happens. And then right after that says, when Job said that to his wife, what he needed to do, it says he didn't even sin against God. It's not sinful. It's sinful to say that God, by his own hand, did this or did that. That's where it gets sinful. We start attributing sin to his own hand. But it's not sinful to say that, look, evil can't even exist without God because God has ordained all things. That's not evil. And it's certainly, it's certainly not evil to say that, look, we ought to be willing as Christians to accept the good and the bad all from the Father for his own purposes. That's not sinful to say that. It might be sinful for us to get angry with God and curse his name. That's what Satan wanted Job to do. That's sinful. And Job never did that. He's sovereign over evil things. Job chapter 42, verse 11. I know this is a hard pill to swallow, but it's true. Uh, this verse says, all his brothers, this is in reference to uh, Joseph, all his brothers and sisters, no, this is in reference to Job, I'm sorry. <laughs> Why did I say Joseph? He somehow got in the book of Job. Job 42, verse 11, listen to this. I, I'm going to talk about Joseph later, I think. All his brothers and sisters, speaking of Job, and all who had known him before came and ate bread with Job in his house. Okay, so this is after Job's terrible travail. And it says, listen to this, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Huh? None of that evil that Job experiences happens unless God allows it to happen. Why? Because he's sovereign over evil things. Nothing happens without God's approval. Think about that. I love how they just say it as it is. He is sovereign over evil things. Number 10, God is, so this makes sense. God is sovereign over Satan and the demons. You know, some church circles will tell you that Satan and God are evenly matched and they're in an eternal arm wrestling match. That's about the dumbest thing I've ever heard or seen. It's not true. God is completely, absolutely sovereign over all evil things. He's absolutely sovereign over the perpetrators of evil. Evil men, evil Satan, the devil, the demons, he's sovereign over them all. We go back to Job again. Job chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. Listen to how Satan has to report to God. Uh, and this is the Lord, uh, Satan and, and the demons have, have come before God, before God's throne in heaven. And here's what the Lord says to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears me and turns away from evil? Okay, so, so Satan's out looking for somebody to try to devour, and God in his sovereignty suggests Job. We studied this, right? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, well, hold on, man. Does Job fear you for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Satan says, to, Satan says to God, to the Lord, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. In other words, he only worships you and loves you because you give him a lot of great stuff. Sounds like charismania. 
And then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. This is an example of God's sovereignty over dark forces, over Satan and the demons. God suggests something to Satan. Satan criticizes God's suggestion. And then God persuades Satan to go ahead and do it. And then Satan goes down and trashes Job's life. And Job doesn't do what Satan said he would do, curse God. None of this happens without God's sovereign work in play. This is kind of repeated in chapter 2, verse 36 of Job. Job, uh, Satan and the demons come back up before God, and they're looking for another one to devour because it didn't work out with Job the first time. And what does the Lord say to Satan? Have you considered my servant Job again, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears me and turns away from evil? Look, Satan, you did all this stuff to him. You took his kids, you took his wealth, you took his house, you took all those things. But he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without any reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his own life. But stretch out your hand, this is Satan telling God, stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face, I guarantee it. And the Lord says, well, I'm not going to do it. Go ahead, you do it. You can do anything you want to him, but you can't take his life. And Satan leaves and goes down there. And what happens with Job just probably a few days later, if that? He gets these horrendous boils all over his life. He gets turned into like the elephant man with pus. It was a, that's disgusting. It was a bad situation. But what I'm telling you is, is that we see two times the veil of heaven pulled aside and we see Satan up there in front of God, answering to God, God making suggestions to Satan, Satan accepting those suggestions, and then coming down here and doing what God suggested. What do we learn from these texts? God is sovereign over Satan and the demons. They don't do a darn thing without God's approval. Nothing. In fact, sometimes God is the one that has to make suggestions to them. That's a hard pill to swallow, but it's what you're reading and it's what you're studying. We see this again in, in Luke chapter 8, verse 31 through 33. Uh, this is with Legion. Remember the Legion of Demons and that guy? He was chained and shackled up, but he'd break all that stuff because he, he was just possessed at a level that, that we've never seen. I, this would terrify any of us if we were to see this. It says here, The demons begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. I've talked about the abyss. It translates as Hades as well. So this is the idea of them begging Jesus not to throw them into hell. And it says this, And there was a large herd of pigs feeding on a nearby hillside, and they begged Jesus to let them enter the pigs. Jesus gave them permission, and the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. Then what happened? The herd rushed down the steep bank and fell into the lake, and they all drowned. I think all those demons closed their eyes for a second, then reopened their eyes, and they were, there they were in the abyss. <laughs> they not only went into the pigs, but... But the Lord Jesus, who is sovereign over Satan and the demons, sends them to this place of torment that they did not want to go to. What am I telling you? He is sovereign over Satan and the demons. Absolutely sovereign over them. If, if you think that Satan is making a mess of your life, first of all, you need to check yourself to make sure that it's not you making a mess of your life because it's usually we're the Satan doing it. But if Satan is actually interfering with your life, know that God has allowed that for your good somehow. Somehow he's going to work it, some good out of that. He will. He will. Number 11, God is sovereign over salvation. 
is sovereign over salvation. And this, this is the, really the area of dispute between these battling soteriologies, Arminianism and Calvinism. Really, I think it's a battle for God's absolute sovereignty at the core, but this is really the issue. Romans chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, this is God speaking. This is actually, Paul is citing uh, what God said to Moses. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Okay, it's up to God whom God wants to show mercy to. Not up to us, it's up to Him. It's His choice. It's His decision. And then he says this, and speaking of, of, of how a person is elected or how a person is saved, Paul says this, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. How are people saved today and throughout church history? By praying a prayer? No, by a God who shows them mercy. We got to get this through our heads, people. Because when we say it's because they prayed a prayer or it's something they did, we are preaching an article of Arminianism. God is the one who shows mercy, Him alone. And He shows it to some, and to others He doesn't. And that's His choice. You may not like that, but that's his choice. And guess what? When you've created everything, you get to do with creation whatever you want. You're going to let somebody come into your house and tell you how to decorate it? No. You're going to tell them, sorry, I don't like puke green on the wall. I get to do with my walls what I want. You're the one that bought that house. You're the one that labored to do that. Or you're the one that's paying the rent. God has the, the same jurisdiction over his entire creation. We don't get to tell God who He's going to save or who He should save. It's according to His mercy. It always has been, always will be. And if you're a recipient of His mercy, you have salvation. You ought to not get upset about that. You ought to rejoice. Uh, let's see. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. You are saved because God predestined to adopt you as a son or daughter of His. He chose an eternity past to do this. What? Based on what? His love. Based on His mercy. Salvation depends on who is, whoever it is that's going to be saved. It, 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 it is contingent upon whoever is predestined unto that salvation. That's the way that it works. And the church is, 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 I think, very large, and that's expressed in, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. So we don't want to think that it's just us in this place, although that's the way we tend to think. Oh, we're the frozen chosen. No. Church is bigger than we imagine because he's predestined and shown mercy to a great many people. Does he? And here's the thing, too, we need to get straight. Mercy is God expressing his love towards someone. His mercy towards someone. He doesn't have to do that. We never have to show a person mercy if they've hurt us. If we do that, we're godlike. But mercy is not something that can be earned. Mercy is something that is freely given by the one who possesses it. So God gives mercy without being contingent on anything. He gives mercy according... The only thing it's contingent on is His own will and purposes. You can't earn mercy... You can't demand mercy. How many of us have demanded mercy when we've done something stupid? We were all children. You know, when dad walks in with a belt, you, you demand mercy. You need to give me mercy. What did he give me? Stripes. I needed stripes. I did not need mercy in that moment. I needed discipline. 
Mercy is not contingent on anything other than God's own will and purposes and His own love. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 30. For those whom God foreknew, and we're going to talk about foreknowledge quite a bit in a, in a, in a sermon or two. doesn't mean that He looks out through the corridors of time and sees people doing things, responding positively, positively to Christ, and therefore God decides to predestine them. It doesn't have anything to do with what we're doing. Again, it has to do with mercy, right? Why? Because it depends not on human will or human exertion, but on God who has mercy, right? That's back in Romans chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. God foreknew those whom He foreknew. Here's a better way to translate the word, those whom God foreloved. To foreknew means to know somebody intimately. It doesn't mean to study history. It doesn't mean to study the future. How can God look out the corridors of time and learn by analyzing human beings to see who's going to positively respond to Christ and then elect them based on that or predestined? How can God, who doesn't exist in time, who knows all things, look through the corridors of time and study human, human future? He can't do that. It's impossible. He knows everything all at once. For those whom God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Salvation doesn't consist of just mansions and pearly streets and golden streets in heaven. It consists of being coming like Jesus. That is what true salvation is. What? In order that He, Jesus, might be firstborn among many, brother, among, among many brothers. He was at the resurrection. And those whom He predestined, talking about the elect that God predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. This is basically the ordo salutis or the golden chain of salvation. It shows from beginning to end that it is a work of God, that He is sovereign over salvation. That's what this teaches. He is entirely sovereign over it. And we can see this in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39 and verse 44. We're getting toward the end of this list. This is a, a big list. Jesus said this, all that the, listen to this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Okay, Jesus is teaching here that those who were predestined to salvation were literally given to Christ in eternity past, and that was actualized during Christ's ministry, and then it's actualized every time a person gets saved. The Father gave to Jesus a people. Jesus died on the cross for those people. He says, all that the Father has given me, they will actually come to me. They will get saved. And he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So why would Jesus, the, the, the church, the elect are a gift from the Father to the Son. Why would Jesus ever cast out any of His people, any of these people that are given to Him? That would be like Him rejecting the gift the Father has given Him. And He says, for I, listen to this, this just, just, just makes the Arminian argument indefensible in every conceivable way. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, this is Jesus speaking, but the will of Him who sent me. And now listen to this. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. I'm not going to lose any of, any of the elect, any of the people that God predestined to, to salvation according to His mercy. I won't lose any of them. In fact, here's what I'm going to do. I will. This is the will of the Father for me to do this, for me to die for them. This is the will of the Father. He's going to give them to me. They will come to me, and I will raise them up on the last day. That speaks of the resurrection at the return of Christ. Listen to what else he says here in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
A person can't even come to Christ unless the Father preemptively draws him. How is that drawing done? Is it like, hey, it's a good idea to come to Jesus? No, it's the conversion of that man's heart, that woman's heart. He regenerates them, gives them, gives them a new heart, gives them the gifts of faith and repentance. They exercise them and they come right to Christ as they should with all the joy in the world. They finally found what they've been looking for their whole life, like the U2 song says. Uh, actually, he says, I still haven't found what I'm looking for after he was allegedly saved. This is a work of God's sovereignty. Salvation is acts. Oh, man. All right, here, listen. These are truths that I've been preaching for years and people still reject them. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Remember, this is not my interpretation. This is what Scripture says. This is the Bible directly. Some people will hear this verse and say, you're preaching Calvinism. I just read a verse to you. I didn't say anything about John Calvin. Listen to this. When the Gentiles heard Paul and Barnabas, they were preaching the gospel to these Gentiles, they were very glad and thanked the Lord for the Lord's message. And all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. Chosen for eternal life. They didn't choose Christ. They were chosen by the Father and given to the Son. And at this particular moment, when they're hearing the gospel, the Spirit comes in power, regenerates their hearts, and they freely come with all the joy. And they were thankful for the gospel that Paul and Barnabas preached. They didn't even call it Paul and Barnabas' message. We're thankful that you came and preached God's message to us. It's God's message. It's God's salvation. Even the Gentiles here were brand new believers, and they understood this. What am I telling you? God is sovereign over salvation, period. And we will talk about this more in the coming weeks. Number 12, God is sovereign over the reprobate. What are the reprobate? Those who will never be saved, those whom God has passed over, just like in Egypt. God is sovereign over the reprobate. He is sovereign over unbelief. He is sovereign over judgment, and He is sovereign over hell. Romans chapter 9, verse 21. Listen to this. Has the potter, God is the potter in this scenario, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What is being said here? What is being said here is God fashions from the same lump of clay, and we would think of dirt because that's what Adam was formed from. He fashions some for honorable use, salvation, and some for the opposite. He just leaves them alone. That's the reprobate. God has the right to do this in creation. He creates some for eternal glory and some for eternal destruction. And guess what? You think, well, that's bad. That's not right for God to do that. Go ask a lost sinner how they feel about God. They might flip you the bird. They're perfectly happy with their sin. They hate God. They're enemies of God. They're not sitting there going, wow, I really wish I could know God. They hate Him. They are enemies. We'll talk about this in the coming weeks. He is sovereign over reprobation. He has chosen to save some, and He has chosen not to save some. And He is not obligated to save any. Again, mercy is up to Him. <clears throat> John chapter 12, verses 37 to 40. Though This is, this is hardcore. Though Jesus, all of it is, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, the people still did not believe in Him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here's Isaiah's word. Here's God's prophetic word through Isaiah way back. 
uh, what, seven, nine hundred years or so before Jesus comes? Lord, who has believed what, uh, what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, listen to this, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Okay, according to this verse, God is in the sovereign business of not allowing people to understand and comprehend the gospel. We tend to think that that is only Satan's work, the God of the air has blinded people. God does it too. Now, the, the, the interesting thing about this verse is that dead sinners never incline themselves toward God. But even in that scenario, God, God is sovereign over whether people will believe or not believe is what he's ultimately teaching here through this text. God can be in the business of blinding people from seeing certain truths. Why? Because he has a plan to carry out in their lives that won't be a truthful plan on their end. He's sovereign over the reprobate. He's sovereign over unbelief. He's the only one who can cause belief. Now, the fall has caused unbelief, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't gird that up at times. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, this is a tough one. Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of judgment. So he has actually formed out of a lump of clay, some for honorable use and some to be judged. And we say, gosh, that just doesn't seem fair. What's fair is that we all come from the lump and go to judgment. That's what's fair because we're all cosmic, we've all committed cosmic treason. Yes, God has done this. He is sovereign over unbelief. He is sovereign over judgment. The wicked are prepared for the day of judgment. What is the purpose behind that? Because God is glorified by His judgments. Not just the salvation that He gives, but also in judgment. Hell will bring God glory because it shows that God is just. Hard to swallow, but truth. Acts chapter 17, verse 31, God has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by Jesus whom He has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. The resurrection doesn't only symbolize eternal life for us and our future resurrection. It symbolizes the fact that God in His sovereignty will bring judgment on men. It's coming because He's sovereign over judgment. Matthew 25, verses 34 and maybe verse 41 here. Jesus will say to the righteous, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. Who are the righteous? Those who believe. And then Jesus will say to the reprobate, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and the demons. He is sovereign over judgment. He is sovereign over the place that is a place of torment for the devil and the demons and all the wicked. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15 Anyone's name who was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Lake of fire means hell. That is God's judgment and work right there. That's the work of Christ. He is sovereign. He is sovereign over those who will never believe. He is sovereign over, he is sovereign over faith and unbelief. He is sovereign over judgment. He is sovereign over hell. Hell is not a place that is disconnected from God. What makes hell terrifying? The fact that God's there in His judgment, not the devil. 
And I've said this a million times. Hell is a place of torment and punishment for the devil. It's not a place where he runs around with a little poker tormenting people. It is a place of punishment for him. And he's terrified of it, and so are the demons. Because what did the demons say to Jesus when they were in that man? Don't throw us into the abyss. Send us into the pigs. That's a much better lot for us. Why? They didn't want to go down into Hades. They didn't want to go down into hell. Why? Because it's a place of torment and punishment for them. And God is sovereign over that. Thirteen, God is sovereign over our suffering. Is this not what we've been learning from Job? I'm not going to cite Job here because you'd have to read the entire book. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph had said this to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me. Remember, they threw him into a pit and he got sold off to the Midianites. Uh, he says, as for you, when you did that to me, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You know, these guys wanted Joseph to die. God, working behind the scenes, has him traded off to Midianites. He becomes like the second most powerful man in Egypt. And because of the vision, visions that he was able to interpret from Pharaoh and all that, they were able to store grain and all that during probably one of the worst famines in Egyptian history because of God working through Joseph and working through those evil brothers and all of that. God exalts Joseph to a high position, which kind of foreshadows the ex exaltation of Christ, but he stores the grain. His own family gets saved from the famine later on with what they had done. What am I telling you? God is sovereign over our suffering. He was sovereign over the suffering of Joseph. He worked out his purposes through that suffering. James chapter 5, verse 11, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. God sovereignly ordained and allowed Job to suffer terribly and tremendously, harder than most of us will ever suffer. Imagine that. He was behind all of that, but he had a purpose behind that suffering. And his purpose wasn't to reward Job at the end of it with more goodies and blessing. It was, it was to vindicate the charges of Satan against God that Job, you know, that God saves people or whatever and that Job, it, God saves people for the purpose of, of, of having them worship Him because He gives them good things. That was the charge. You know, Job only likes you, God, because you give him great stuff and you've blessed his life. So God set out to allow the suffering to prove that that's not the way that it actually works. God saves people and they love Him whether they have losses or not. God is sovereign over our suffering. He wastes nothing. You, know, you may be suffering now, and none of it's wasted. It has an eternal purpose behind it. God is working behind it. Be sensitive to that rather than kicking against the goads because sometimes we can't bring ourselves out of suffering. Sometimes we cause our own suffering, but a lot of times we can't bring ourselves out of it, and we have to just say, okay, this is God's doing. What can I learn through it? And here's a bonus. Ah, this came to me at midnight last night, so it didn't make it into the bulletin. Number 14, this is the bonus round. I think it's important to illustrate God is sovereign over the church. Right? Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, Christ is God. Christ is the head of the church, which is His body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So He is first in everything. You know, people today think that the head of a church is the senior pastor or maybe in Roman Catholicism it's the Pope. They're not the head. They're not the sovereign head over the church. God is. Christ is. Sovereign over the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, 
Uh, this is Paul writing to Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Look, God is entirely sovereign over the church. When we see Christians and churches doing banana crazy things, you know, they're Arminian, whatever they are, and they're, they're dropping eggs from helicopters and all that. We need to remember that God is sovereign over even that foolishness. He is. He's sovereign over it. He's sovereign over His church. He's ruling and reigning over His church, which resembles His kingdom on earth, which He will come to fully establish and consummate at the return of Christ. He's sovereign over the church. He is the senior pastor of RHC. He is. Jesus is. It's His church. He rules and reigns over it. That's why we want to carry out His will. Let's wrap it up. That was like a marathon, right? Whew. I'm like winded. I, I think that we can see just through these examples that the Bible clearly teaches the absolute sovereignty of God. We really, what I'm saying is we really haven't left any areas outside of His sovereignty. We've tried, I tried to be creative in, in showing you all of, you know, representations of where he's sovereign over everything. And, 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 and I think I've done a, a poor job in that there's so much more that could be said. Uh, we, could, we, could do, we could do probably a year's worth of teaching and barely scratch the surface on this absolute sovereignty of God. The Bible says so much about this. It, it, just, it would take a lot of time to unpack it. But I think we can see through these examples, it's indisputed. The Bible shows that there are no areas in which God's sovereignty has no jurisdiction. He is sovereign over everyone and everything without exception. And yet the Arminian claims that God's sovereignty somehow ends at free will. Isn't that amazing what we've just read, all these verses that deal with God's absolute sovereignty, and somehow through listening to all that we could go back to the default mode of saying, well, there is one place where it can't go, you know? We speak of God's sovereignty as, as like a train, right? It, it, you know, its only stop is man, right? The sovereign express, it can go no further than man. How ridiculous. How ridiculous. And, and how, how do these people, and, and we love them, and many of them are our brothers and sisters in Christ, how do they harmonize their view of the sovereignty of God not being absolute, stopping at man's free will? How do they harmonize that uh, how do they harmonize divine sovereignty with, with God directing, you know, with, the, with it being limited, His sovereignty being limited? How do, they, how do they deal with it and harmonize it with God directing the hearts of kings wherever He pleases? How do they harmonize that with God hardening the hearts of people like Pharaoh? How do they harmonize that with God causing kings to invade other lands? How do we harmonize this? How do they do it? And, and a zillion other passages that exalt and preach and teach and show and reveal the absolute sovereignty of God. How does the Arminian do this? He can't. He can't. And this is the foundation on which Arminianism stands. The partial sovereignty of God is the sandstone of Arminian soteriology. And I call it a sandstone because it's as weak as a beach. It's not a sure foundation. It's like sand. Pour water on sand, what happens? You get a hole. 
The partial sovereignty of God is the sandstone of Arminian soteriology. Here's the bottom line. This is what I want you to take away from this message. I know it's been long and we've covered a lot, and you're probably saying, man, how am I going to remember all this? Here's what I want you to take away, okay? If God's sovereignty is not absolute, His salvation is not absolute. How can God keep sinners saved if He is not in absolute control? Because that's essentially what we're saying when His sovereignty stops somewhere. He doesn't have total supremacy. He doesn't have total control. And I guess we better throw out Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, one of my favorite passages, right? Because a partially sovereign God would not be able to protect us from every separating power, right? Nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. No principalities, men, ourselves, nothing can. That's what it says. But we've got to throw that out if we've got a partially sovereign God because He just doesn't have the gumption and power and strength to keep us saved. Anything could separate us. We would separate ourselves on day two. This is why R.C. Sproul used to argue if we could lose our salvation, we would. I want you to think about the implications. This is really an issue of the absolute sovereignty of God, isn't it? It's an issue of that and humanism rising above that. If man can flex his will and stop God from doing what God sets out to do, then man is more powerful than God. Man is the sovereign, isn't he? That's a, that's a fact. And there isn't an Arminian on, on the planet that would admit to that, but it's the truth of their soteriology. Man is the sovereign. This is humanism on steroids. This is what Arminianism teaches, the partial sovereignty of God, the, the exaltation of man. It is nothing less than humanism. And this is why it was rejected at Carthage in 418. This is why it was rejected at Dortrich, Dort, in 1619. And this is why it was rejected at RHC in 2012 when we, plant, uh, when we planted, and it's been rejected every following year. Amen? And yet, the foundation on which the doctrines of grace stand is the absolute sovereignty of God. As taught in the Bible, I have displayed this for you today. The absolute sovereignty of God is the bedrock, the solid foundation of biblical Calvinistic soteriology. And now that we have established the proper foundation from Scripture, the absolute sovereignty of God we can proceed and begin to examine each of the doctrines of grace because that's what they stand on.